Welcome, everyone. It's uh, June 16th, and welcome to The Vegetable Beat, a live weekly roundtable discussion during the garden season. Uh, my name is Dennis Van Dyke, uh, and you're stuck with me as a host this week. I'm a vegetable specialist with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture. Uh, Mike Renke is our MSU uh, Zoom engineer in the background, pulling the strings behind the curtain. Thanks, Mike. Today, we'll be speaking with uh, Chrissy Hopting with the Cornell Cooperative Extension in New York State about uh, everything onion stem philium. So welcome, Christy. We'll, uh, we'll do a more formal introduction, I guess, after some housekeeping, get that out of the way. Uh, we want you to get your questions answered as well. If you're listening via Zoom uh, at glveg.net slash listen or Facebook at facebook.com slash veggiebeat, you can submit questions to the chat or Q&A box or as Facebook comments. Uh, we will try and answer them as we go. Uh, and if not, we'll just save it for the end. Certified Crop Advisor credits are available to live listeners this week. If you're in Michigan, uh, restricted use pesticide certification credits are also available. So if you'd like CCA or RUP credits, please put your name and email in the chat uh, or in the Facebook comments. and We can follow up after. Um, so with a little uh, housekeeping out of the way, why don't we uh, get into it? For those of you that may not be uh, familiar with you or, or know you, Christy, could you give us a quick uh, synopsis or rundown of uh, of where you work and what you do? Yes, I'm an, I'm an extension educator with the Regional Cornell Cooperative Extension Vegetable Program in Western New York. We cover 14 different counties and we have six specialists. And I'm the lucky one who's the onion specialist. I've held, this is, I'm, this is my 21st season here in Western New York. I'm, a, I'm actually a native of Canada. I got my master's degree in the Holland Marsh and Onion Megan and Onion Smut, which I work on, on this <laughs> outside of the onion industry sounds totally crazy. Um, and so um, I run an onion scout, I run an onion scouting program, or I, I call it a research scouting program because I'm really just looking very intensively at 20 fields across three muck onion growing regions. I'm certainly not a crop consultant, but I, I am walking onion fields weekly. And then I run an extensive, extensive applied research program. All of my stuff is done on farm, on, on growers fields. So I'm, I'm in this very unique position that I'm walking their fields. I'm doing the research. I'm making the recommendations. They're adopting them. And then I see how they work and in very close contact with growers. And there's um, lots of back and forth. And, you know, it's just, a, it's a process. We're constantly evolving. Um, it's very exciting. Oh, very cool. That sounds great. Um, so let's get into stemphilium a little bit. I'm sure if onion growers are in Ontario and New York, at least uh, in Michigan, they're probably pretty familiar with stemphilium. But for um, some of those growers in the in different other regions that may not as be familiar, so what what sort of is stemphilium uh, leaf blight of onions? It's a foliar 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 leaf disease of onions. Um, it's characterized by Target spot lesions, approximately the size of a thumbprint, um, can look, it, it looks very similar to purple blotch and for whatever reason has emerged as a, dom as a dominant, dominant new disease. Um, we don't see purple blotch so much anymore. So there's the, the lesion development, which results in leaf dieback. And then when the leaf dieback becomes excessive, and I guess my def de definition of excessive leaf dieback is 30% or more prior to lodging. Obviously, once the onions lodge, the leaves die back. But um, 
once we exceed 30%, and if that keeps going and the onions can actually end up dying standing up instead of the leaves lodging properly, I can, I've seen yield reductions 30 to 40% maybe. Wow. So the, the leaf dieback, the, the aggressiveness of that from stemphilium seems to be even more important than the, the lesion development. But of course they run together and then not all lesions are diagnostic. It couldn't, can't always be that simple. Um, but also we see colonization of spores in the carotid leaf tips. So kind of those three things. Okay. Leaf is. So when you say 30%, is that the number of leaves or is that like 30% of well, a leaf they, sort of thing? Yeah. 30% of the total leaf area, I yeah. guess I would say, cause they don't just, it's not just two leaves die back out of 10 it's all right. are kind of progressively dying the old ones are dead and then the newer ones are starting to die yeah you'll have like leaf tip you know that could be one or two inches long and then of course if that gets longer and longer yeah that's what I mean by that so that's what uh what you're looking for and the damage you can do um are there a certain you know weather conditions that cause it to thrive like certain seasons you see more of it or what well, sort of correlation still feeling leaf blight the disease of summer its optimum temperature is 77, minimum is 50, maximum is around 93. So that's the thing is it can continue to run, develop, um, infect into the 90s, whereas botrytis leaf blight and downy mildew are the other two important diseases of onions prefer much, much cooler conditions, like high six, they're shut off high 60s, early 70s. So it, it can definitely continue to go in this in, in summer. And of course, like any disease, it likes leaf moisture, 12 hours, 16 hours, humidity. So when we get into those stifling hot days in summer and we, and we get dew and thick crop canopies, Stemphilium likes that. And in very general terms, even if we're not having a hot summer, even if it's a cooler, more moderate summer, but we've got increased rainfall, yes, diseases are going to drop. You know, that's what drives disease drives diseases. Yeah. Interesting. Um, when about did you start seeing it in New York? Like how long have you really been dealing with this as a, a big problem? So I guess the first detection in New York was in 1985, which was when I was in grade six. So that was when <laughs> I was in New York. I don't really know what the situation was back then. And they reported very close to hundred percent incidents in all fields in 89, 90, 91, and then around 90, or then it started to drop off. And then in 93, it, it was rare. So that's when I was, I guess, in my first year of college, <laughs> still, still not in New York. I don't know what's going on, but I wonder if um, they may have, that might've been when Roverall came on the scene, maybe like there might've been another uh, fungicide that was introduced that maybe had good control of stemphilium. And I know Quadrus, they were using Quadrus when I got to, I, I went, to, I got to New York in 2001. Um, and I know Quadrus is definitely in use at that time. I can't remember how, when it got labeled for sure, but in retrospect, I'm wondering if, you know, maybe it has been here all along, but we've had some really good fungicides that were controlling it. And then they started developing resist or the pathogen started developing resistance to them. And it's really, really started blowing up around 2010. And I know in Ontario, um, it was first reported in 2008. And I remember going to the Bradford Muck conference um, and looking at the pictures on the screen of stem filling leaf blight and onion. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not, 
I'm not seeing that. So remember, I'm walking, I walk onion fields all the time. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not seeing this. The only time I see that is if we have more herbicide burn, leaf burn than we'd like. And then yes, stemphilium would colonize that and kind of act like a secondary. Um, But then around 2010, we're like, you know what? These onions just aren't finishing off like they they used to, like more of this excessive leaf dieback, dying, standing up. And I'm like, I have a feeling I know what's going on here. And, you know, send in some leaf samples and sure enough, stemphilium. And it just, so around that time, I'll say we were using a lot of Scala Bravo. So FRAC9 and then the multi-site mode of action Bravo. A um, little bit of Rovrol, a little bit of Pristine, first FRAC7 on the market at that time. And um, I'm doing fungicide trials and I'm screening, you know, the FRAC 3s, the Inspire Super Quarters Top, like that kind of stuff was new back then. I was looking at Luna Tranquility. Maravon was in my trial. And those treatments are green, whereas my Scala, which I'm recommending, is falling apart. Roverall looks like it untreated and certainly Bravo is not holding up. And so it was just all kind of came together. It was right there, you know, oh, we probably have some kind of fungicide resistance. We've got some new mode of actions that are controlling this disease. We've got a new disease. Um, so that's, that's kind of, that's kind of how it started for me around there. And then through the fungicide trials, particularly through the FRAC sevens and the FRAC threes, being able to build, I mean, as, as we got products labeled, um, we could build some very good programs and had it under control until we got more, I don't know how much you want to get into resistance this far later on in the conversation. So we had it and then it started yeah. falling apart again. Um, but yeah, definitely dealing with it for the last decade. I think it's, yeah. And who knows how, you know, what the story is before that. Did it, did it mutate somewhere along the way and become more aggressive? Is the DNA different than it was 20 years ago? I, I don't know. I don't know. I yeah. think asking that question. Yeah, that's interesting because that's that was going to be one of my questions. Is we knew where, do we know where it comes from? Well, it probably has been here for longer than we think. And what changed to make it more of an issue? It mm-hmm. sounds like sounds like resistance is a is a main driver of that, but maybe it's, there's I something else going factor. on that we don't know yet. What's very puzzling to me is we so we were always talking about purple blotch, which I said is not is really visually not distinguishable from stemphilium leaf blight, and then we started you know we'd send in leaf samples every single thing that came back was stemphilium. We're like, where the heck did the purple blotch go? <laughs> the only places we found purple blotch was on upland, um, like low input for organic, low input or organic farms. Huh. So it's still to this day curious to me. So it's completely been pushed out basically or and taken over by stemphilium or. Well, it seems that way, but at the same time, maybe that first infection was purple blotch, but stemphilium is such a, such a bully and so that's what the, that's the spores you end up seeing like it may have started something else but stemphilium is what you get interesting i might lead in, into my next question as well um with it becoming more of an issue if you've grown onions conventionally you know weed control is always an issue um mm-hmm. unless at least here and i assume in most regions do you think the increase in stemphilium could be due to you know increased herbicide usage more herbicide damage do you think there's a link there at all that's a, that's a very, that's a very good question. Um, and I do a ton of herbicide work as well. Cause you know, as you know, onions are very poor competitors with weeds and labor is getting more expensive and challenging. So yeah, I'm working really, really hard on trying to control weeds with herbicides and, you know, I'm not afraid to be heavy handed and burn the onions a little bit. Right. 
Um, and you absolutely see stem phileum coming in on that leaf burn necrotic tissue. What my gut feeling is, is that it's acting as a secondary at that point. It attack, it's attacking the necrotic tissue. It's just being a lazy secondary. It's perfectly happy on those necrotic leaves, not really interested in jumping into the front seat as a primary aggressive pathogen and taking down that crop. Now, I ha- I'm actually going to trial that this summer because I really want these growers to use these herbicides to the weeds. So I'm really hoping that that that's how it plays out, that those outer leaves that are burned, the stem is going to be on, we're just going to slow off, and then we're just going to carry on as usual. And we did, I did have, a, I was working with a grower, it was a couple of years ago, and we got a lot more herbicide burn than we'd wanted, like a couple leaves burned off. And yes, it's oh. coming in. And yeah, we're recommending the SLB fungicides. So I'm like, you can't not, it's here. You want to protect the healthy foliage. Um, the whole time I'm feeling guilty about recommending all these fungicides. It's like, I don't know if I really need them, but I never had the guts not to spray them and neither did the grower. So I would have loved to see how that would have turned out otherwise. Um, and then another little interesting point that's sort of related to this, we grow a lot of transplants from bare roots in Elba. And so they're, they're grown, they're grown in Arizona. They're ripped out of the ground, not ripped out of the ground. <laughs> they're, pulled, they're pulled out of the ground. They're bundled, put in a box, shipped across the country. Then they arrive in New York. They sit for a while. Eventually they get put in the ground. By that time, they're pretty dry, you know, and then they get growing again. They've got this nice, fresh, new green growth, but those outer necrotic leaves are still hanging on. And we were doing some epidemiological studies last year and a field of transplants with those necrotic tips that are absolutely infected with stemphilium spores. So not necessarily the target spots, but the spores, like 80% of that field has stemphilium. Those outer leaves slaw off, no stemphilium detected anymore. And there are studies that have shown, I think it's my experience as well, that it tends to like older leaves. We certainly tend not to see symptoms until the plants start bulbing. So when they bulb, the onions pulling from the leaves into the bulb, you get tip burn and outer leaf dieback anyway. That's when we start to see stemphilium. So very early in the season when the new growth is so tender, I don't, I think the stemphilium would have to work really hard to get into that. It prefers an older leaf for, for whatever reason. Right. So it's kind of hanging around Those on some older leaves. Pardon? Yeah. Well, I was going to say it's kind of hanging around on some older leaves and older dying leaves and then getting into the other leaves. And when it starts to bulb and this plant is stressed a little bit and can't fight as much, then it really takes over. Yeah, I think, I think that's what we're seeing. So that's why I'm really hoping that burning the leaves early when the onions are young, the stemphilium not going to really like to infect that new growth. It'd just rather hang out in the necrotic tissue. So the question is what happens to it when that leaf slaws off? Is that going to be a source of spores eventually for when the plants do become more susceptible? Right. So yeah. another common damage you might see in onion fields is, uh, is thrips damage. Do you think, is there a relationship between the amount of thrips damage you see and the amount of symphilium you see? Have you looked at that at all? Uh, actually, Ashley Leach, who was a PhD, PhD student with Brian Nott looked at that a few years ago. Um, I have always felt that the two, there's some kind of interaction there. Stemphilium's probably a bit worse with onion thrips because onion thrips can stress out a plant too. And again, that comes in kind of that secondary 
older leaf, more necrotic, just a weaker plant. And the symphilium can prey on that to some extent. Um, but she actually did a focus study and in the laboratory found that there was an increase in Stymphilium com- colonization as thrips, dam- thrips feeding and damage increased. So she actually was able to measure it. And then in a field trial where she had insecticides versus no insecticides, um, that there was greater colonization of Stymphilium where the thrips weren't controlled. And um, also greater leaf dieback by I think 40 to 50%. So I was talking about that 30%. So if if that could be reduced to 15%, you know, that's, a, that's already a much healthier plant. So, and then she also showed that very, very low, very, very low rates, but thrips can transfer an SLB spore to a plant and cause an infection. Um, I think it was less than 20%. However, when you've got thrips out of control and 200, 500 per plant, you've got 500 SLB spores per lesion times how many lesions times how many plants. I mean, we're talking about millions and billions of that going on in an onion field. So I'm, I'm, I think, I, I really think that if, if we can do an excellent job of controlling thrips, that stemphilium is not going to be as bad. And I think the two play together. It's, it's, it's a bit of a complex. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, could a grower maybe grow different varieties at all or different types? So is there a different susceptibility? Maybe start with this for between yellows, reds, and Spanish onions. Do you see any difference in susceptibility? The only thing that I've seen that's really popped is when I go to an upland farm and the sweets, like they might have a red variety of sweets and then some, a yellow cooking onion. And the sweets are head and shoulders have more stemphilium than hmm. others in the muck, in the muck regions where we're growing standard red and yellows there every now and again, there's a case where I'm like, Oh my gosh, maybe this is a susceptible variety. And I'm excited about that because that's what I want for my fungicide trials. Um, but I've, I'd have to say there's nothing that popped. And I do variety trials. And we've, again, looking at the different varieties in a variety trial, there's nothing that's really popped that, oh, my gosh, this is really susceptible. Or, oh, my gosh, this is really um, tolerant. Um, and I, there, I think there's been a couple other studies that have looked at that. And there's a few consistent differences, but they're little. There is some work being done somewhere with um, Allium sepa and Allium fichulosum crosses, which is the bunching onion. And I think they are, they have some material that is resistant to stemphilium. Okay. Oh, maybe in our future, that would be great um, for a grower to adopt a, a, a resistant cultivar. It's got to have all the other characteristics. It's got to have good pack out. You know, it can't, they're not just going to grow something that's resistant to stemphilium if they can't make money off of it. So, right. So there's not much differences right now between the cultivars, but they're working on um, breeding it into potentially in the future. Yeah. And I don't know how long away, how long away that would be. Yeah. But yeah. So potentially that could be in our future. So in the meantime, you've mentioned it earlier, a little bit about resistance and fungicide use. Um, So why don't we get into that a little bit? Which, I guess we'll start with this, which fungicides are, are sort of most af- effective against stemphilium? <laughs> okay, so yeah, you want to talk about question, back in but... <laughs> the day where everything <laughs> fell apart? <laughs> I, I, okay, I'll, I'll give you, I'll just give you the rundown. Um, so uh, 20, 2017, that is when we were running, okay, so FRAC, FRAC 7, so Luna, Maravon, um, number one, in very close second, the FRAC 3, so Inspire Super Quadras Top, 
biathon till um, very close second. And then we had, we also got good activity from scale and rover all together. I think both of those individually were slipping, but put them together and there was some synergy and it was a pretty good combination. So 2017, we're running a seven or three every single week, following all the label rules and restrictions for respect to crop rotation, maximum use per season, throwing in some rover on scale in there. And 2017 was a cool wet year with, I think there, there was high SLB pressure, but we, that program was beautiful. So back in its day, the sevens and the threes did a phenomenal job. Um, we picked up resistance to quadrus in 2015. So obviously we weren't using that in 2017. And in 2016, we identified Scalia. So the frac nines starting to develop resistance. So they, in a fungicide trial, they would be significantly better than nothing, but not great. That same year, same year, Endura, another frac seven, different subclass from Luna and Maravon, uh, significantly better than nothing, but not great identified that it was developing resistance. But at that time, the Luna and the Maravon were so good. So we're like, oh, maybe there isn't cross resistance between the different subclasses of FRAC 7. So we're like, rotate the subclasses. So Luna, Maravon, then FRAC 3, you know, mix them up as much as possible. And then in 2017, Maravon slipped from a front runner to second position. The year after that, it was farther down the, farther down the river. Um, significantly better than nothing, but definitely different, like significantly worse than Luna Tranquility. And then two years ago, it was not significantly different than the untreated. Same thing last year. It didn't get better. Um, so the sevens are Maravon's done here. Luna Tranquility has been hanging on a little bit better. Um, it's, it's more middle of the pack. It's not a front runner anymore. Um, but yeah, we, we were still using it last. We were still using it last year. It still has some utility. I'm not sure if that's because it's a premix with with the Scala in it with the nine, but it it is separated out from Maravon as as being better, although it slipped. And then we also have resistance to Scala and Roverall, not in all of the regions. It's holding up a little bit better in 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 um, some than others. So we are left with Frac three which as of last year, um, quadrus top, inspire super and tilt, not significantly different than the untreated with respect to the dieback. Um, the data on the lesion counts is a bit spotty sometimes or jumpy. Sometimes it looks better than others. It's still, it still has some activity, but it's really losing it on the ability to reduce dieback. And that's the point I don't think I made yet that um, with the cultivar trials, with my fungicide trial results, that the um, the resistance to stemphilium infection can be independent to the susceptibility to dieback. So you can okay. have a variety that's full of lesions, but it doesn't have the dieback. You can have a variety yeah. that's got the dieback, but um, doesn't have the lesions. And vice, and that same thing with the fungicide. Like Roverall was in the green, green and good looking category, but was full of spots. And then oh, interesting. Quality, the dieback was slipping, or I mean, it's the green, it's, it's getting more dieback. So it doesn't look as good, but it's clean. Hmm. That makes sense. So it's kind of, there's just two things going on here. Yeah. And, that's interesting. Um, Have you looked at which causes more of the yield loss? I, the dieback, the right? Right. 
So I've been, I call it my fungicide dating program where I'm trying to mix together. I'm like, well, Roverall is green and Luna doesn't have spots. So let's put them together and see if we can come up with a power couple and looking, just looking for synergies and scale of Roverall was a synergy for a little while that really hung on for us last year. I did have Luna and Roverall, which was a front runner, like significantly better than either by itself. Um, but you know, again, I don't know the details of the science. I'm just out there putting combinations together to see what, what pops. And right now our best performing treatments are actually three plus three. So quadrostrop plus gel, viathon plus gel is a front runner head and shoulders above anything else last year. Um, so it's kind of a way of using a sneaky way of using a high rate by putting two frac threes together. Um, but that's, what's holding up right now. And I did a lot of rate studies with the frac sevens because I was like, wow, it's worth the money to use a high rate of Luna. I think, I think it goes from 16 to 23 or something like that. And the 16 ounce rate 40 bucks. So what's that 23? I'm like, is it worth 150 bucks? And you know what? I looked at 16 ounces all the way up to 24 and I didn't see a, a rate relationship. So, it's, so once it's resistant, there's bumping the rate up doesn't seem to respond. It seems so the, the frac sevens are such a potent, but high risk molecule. And so the resistance factor is so high that you just can't crank up that rate to overcome it. Whereas the frac threes, I think the resistance factor is lower. So you can buy a lot by increasing rate. And we've, that's what we've been doing and not only increasing the rate, but stacking threes. Yeah. Well, it's a little terrifying to hear that within, within two years, you can have a product go from best performer to completely five, let's say five, five Five years. Maravon was a front runner in 2015. And by 2019, it was no different than it was no different. Ever seen anything. That's crazy. Yeah, because we're, you know, we're dealing with thrips. We, how many times have we seen thrips develop resistance to stuff? We've had Radiant for over 10 years now. And it's, it's as good today as it was when we got it. And we've been rotating. And that right. we've been rotating our fungicides. Yeah. Like, to teach the growers what the frick is a frack. You know, they did, with the multi-site motivation, they didn't have to know that. But to teach them that, and they know their numbers. They know, they know all the rules. They're following them. We've got tremendous adoption of rotate. We've, I I'm baffled. We've been doing everything we can. And it, yeah, it's I think- model, such a potent molecule that such a high risk of, I was so worried about scale. I was trying to preserve scale. Had I known how fragile the frac sevens were, I would have, I would have played my, I would have played my cards differently. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Cause we think of thrips as a high risk of resistance. We keep talking right. about it, but, and yet synthelium, Seems to be doing quicker. So you mentioned a multi-site, actually. Why don't I ask you about that? How well do they work against Synthelium? Are they helpful in the program or do so they work Man- at all? Mancozeb has never worked. It's always okay. been not significantly different than the untreated. Bravo tends to fall in significantly better than nothing, but not great category. Um, and I, when I first started looking at Bravo, it was in the shadow of the sevens and the threes. And I just kind of overlooked it. But as all these products are falling off, I'm going back through my data going just give me something. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, maybe we can use Bravo. So last year we started using Bravo, as you know, it's a, it's a very good botrytis material. So we've been running that early in the season before the explosion of stemphilium. So we, it tends to fit in after. So we start with Movento for thrips, which we can't use 
We can't put Bravo with Movento because it reduces the efficacy of the insecticides. And then once we've got two Moventos on, we've got a residual ride there for one to two weeks. So that's where we've been popping in the Bravo for both botrytis and Stemphilium. So I, I don't think I mentioned this yet, but our epidemiological studies in New York, where we're putting, where they're collecting leaf samples every week in a grid in several fields, we find a little bit of Stemphilium early in the season. Like it's, it starts lighting up a little bit in, um, what's the time frame? Yeah, the end, of, there's a little bit. Uh, mid-July starts to ramp up. And then somewhere between mid-July and the end of July, it'll be like become 100% incidence and it's raging through the month of August. So try like that, the July window there is when the early, or I should say mid-July is when I'm trying to use Bravo. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, it's going to, it's not going to hold up in, in August as a, as a standalone by any means. Right. So you're, so for a successful spray program that you're recommending, you have Bravo up front early. At what point do you swap into maybe more yeah. effective targeted? Is there a timing? Is it, does it depend on the year? Are you ti- timing it to weather? So the epidemiological studies that Frank Hay did that I just, I just explained, they blows up in somehow during, somehow during the second half of July and then through, and then I did, um, some timing fungicide trials, but we came to the same place that it seems to be, you need to start your SLB fungicide program in mid July or at like half to one inch bulbing, whichever comes first. Cause you know, onions are planted at different dates and between the transplants and stuff. Like sometimes that bulbing could be in June and transplants and a later planted direct seeded. It could be in later July. Um, so yeah, we've been starting it around, around there. And if, and we could be running a six to eight week spray program, whereas trying to have an SLB fungicide in there somewhere. Um, and then saving the heavy hitters when we're in high pressure in August. Um, when, I, when I was talking about 2017, when we were just rotating sevens and threes, you would run that for, for seven to eight weeks, but obviously we blew that out with the sevens. So if, if you had a grower that didn't have resistance, I would recommend no more than two apps per frac per season, ideally. And you've got, assuming you've got twos, threes, sevens, nines to work with, I would co-apply SLB frac groups in every spray. So Luna Tranquility is a, is a seven and a nine. So you're good there. Um, Inspire Super has got two products. Um, Scale Up is Roverall, a two and a, nine, two and a nine, put them together. And then even, I think... I think we're getting a little bit of leverage by rotating the different active ingredients within the frac threes. So we've, I mentioned the four that we've got. So instead of just using inspire all season, inspire super and quadrostrop are the same active, but rotate those with, but with Viathon, which is Tebuconazole. So that's the one in Luna experience. And then, and then tilt, like just mix it up as much as possible. As soon as that pathogen thinks it's got it come in with something else and it has to figure it out again. Yeah. So you said two, no more than two sprays. So for a grower, yeah, let's mean, say they don't have resistance issues and right. you, yeah, and they're, they're just starting fresh. to get it. Two applications of Luna, which would be a seven and nine. Um, so no more than two applications. And I would even rotate Luna with Maravon. I'd rub right. I'd the subclasses of the sevens. Yeah. And maybe even two applications is too much. Um, but yeah, rotate as much as you can and guard the sevens with your life. <laughs> 
No, that's, that's really helpful. I would cheat, I would cheat on threes before sevens. Hmm. And it's not really cheating, you know, but you're running an eight week program and you're, you're going to run, you're going to have to go with four, three of something. But yeah, it seems like the threes are holding up better than the sevens. So I would, I would, I would cheat on a three before a seven. No, really good. Uh, have you, oh, for me, any organic growers out there um, or even conventional growers that are, mm-hmm. that are incorporating some different products? Have you looked at any biological products or anything like that? Is there any help in colonization of root surface or, or leaf surface, sorry, or anything like that? When I first started looking at biologicals, the way I was evaluating my Stemphilium leaf blight trials was at the end of the season. So coming out of heavy pressure and they would be not significantly different than an untreated. Then I started looking at them doing assessments earlier in the season. And for me, that's August before I've got enough disease to evaluate. And I got some activity with lifeguard. Um, a little bit. So that's um, a plant defense activator. There's several of them in the market. I think I've evaluated more than one, but I've definitely done quite a bit of work with lifeguard and inconsistent. I can't get that to be inconsistent, to be consistent. Um, So I've said to growers, maybe if you want to try it, but I'm really not strong. You know, I don't have enough data to strongly back it. Also it's a FRAC 19. Um, Frank Hay got some results with that. And I saw some results with that last year as well. So, um, I had cop, I had copper out there, copper came right, right through copper. Um, yeah. So I've looked at a lot of the, the frac 44s, the bacillus type stuff, the plant activators, and then also, I think that's it for Stemphilium. So they're tough. I mean, it's, it, it, they t- it tends to come through, um, what I'm trying to clearly I'm desperate for another mode of action. So I'm trying to team up a biological with a frac three or something to, to use that to guard against resistance. So the strains that are developing resistance to three, you know, the Oso is right there, bam, take it out. So it doesn't move on. Um, or to rotate in a, you know, so you're using um, say quadrotropus tilt and then, okay, let's go with maybe a biological a Bravo or something and then come back with something heavy, like just because we're trying to reduce the number of, the frac threes and sevens that we're using. So I'm trying to fit them in. It's been a challenge. Um, so I guess I'm most hopeful towards Oso at this point, based on my experience. And I think that's okay. expensive. So I hate recommending something expensive unless I've got good data to back it. And you say that was a Bacillus product that Oso? Um, Oso is a frac 19. Uh, I, oh, I cannot remember what that active is. Okay. I, sorry, I should have known that. I No, no. I, I always talk and frack groups we had a question come in i'd probably mm-hmm. like to ask it before we move on to uh so some non-fungicide uh questions have you looked at philazinam so omega or uh, allegro in canada oh here? yeah i tried place. omega this year because it's supposed to be good on blb sl or botrytis leaf flight symphilium leaf flight and downy mildew and it's very expensive so i was like oh you could just put that on and get all three diseases and okay that's more affordable um it did not do great in my trials with the stemphilium trial. Interestingly, it did better in the plant health. So keeping the plants green running the dieback aspect, but full of spots. So I'm wondering if I was thinking maybe I can pair that up with something else and come up with a, a, a power couple, you know, team it up with something to get some synergy but again, it's really expensive. So that's, 
it's, it's not a cheap, there's, there's gotta be, I don't know how much a grower wants to spay to spray for significantly better than nothing, but not great, but it is another mode of action, which could potentially have value in itself. So that's something I'm going to continue to look on, to look at. And I know it's done well in Georgia. Um, it's developing resistance to botrytis in Quebec. So um, yeah, I don't, I'm going to work on it a little bit more. Great. Thanks. Um, so we've talked a little bit about it getting in through damage and taking over a little bit on plant stresses and then fungicides and resistance. Um, how much do you think sort of overall plant health and nutrition plays into it? Like it, can you sort of have a healthy plant that outgrows Semphilium? You oh, know, I see what you're to saying. Grow, to grow as we focusing on overall plant health and like, is there, is there some promise there? Do you think that maybe uh, like plant nutrition could play a role or? For, for sure. Um, yeah, whenever you have a, whenever you have a stressful situation and, and here we get heat stress roots. So then you get the pink root and then you get the IYSV and you got the thrips and, it, and then some philium and it's just all a complex of stress. And those plants are going to be struggling. Or if you've got fertility issues and they're struggling for that and you've got more necrotic tissues, some can prey on that. That's where it's acting like the secondary, it likes the necrotic tissue in Health in healthy plants, yeah, you're going to be able to. If you've got more foliage to begin with, you're going to have less reduction in yield because you've got you've already got big bulbs, so you know you're still going to get big bulbs. <laughs> um, but where that can go the other way is when you've got a really um, you've got a thick canopy. It's lush lush growth it's you're creating you're irrigating it it's got lots of fertility and it's got this microclimate of humidity and heat the aeration's not as good when you have a high density lush canopy like that and that in itself is more conducive to stemphilium so i guess it depends on how how much it rages from there so you could increase the likelihood of the plants becoming infected um but then at the same time, they're already bigger to compensate for any potential yield reductions that you may have. Right. Right. Yeah. Trade off. We always try to grow healthy onions, even if they get disease. We always try to grow healthy onions. <laughs> yeah. But there's always that trade off. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to ask you sort of about the future. Where do you think, um, where do you think we go from here or, or what's next sort of in Semphilium control? We're starting some work in New York to look at predictive models, um, not necessarily in the sense where risk is low. You, you don't need to spray this week, but risk is low. So you can go with um, maybe a biological or with Bravo. Like I want to know when is the risk high so I can use, you know, the best products that I have. Like I don't want to waste, I don't want to waste this Viathon plus Till, which I probably only have two applications of. I want to place them when I need the most. So I, 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 hopefully we will come up with a predictive model that can help us manage our fungicide program. Um, definitely feel like I'm guessing out there someday. And um, we've started some thrips projects here in New York. We talked about that earlier. Um, just you, doing a better, better job with controlling thrips, which maybe will take the edge off of Stemphilium. In the future, there's resistant cultivars. I'm running out of products. So, um, it's getting very challenging. Um, the, I guess on the other end, when, 
Stemphilium can chase downy mildew. It does chase downy mildew. And that complex is crazy. So make sure we don't get down mildew or we're done. So control what we can and let go of what we can't. I'm not recommending a product that doesn't work. I'm not wasting money. Um, healthy plants, like you say, trying to hopefully we don't have a killer season. Yeah, that's right. Um, with no, I'd like to open it up for anybody that's joining us live. If they have any questions um, to come in. One thing that I just thought of uh, based on what you just said, have you seen any products start to reclaim their former glory? Have they started mm. to work again after you saw them not work for a couple of years? Have mm. you seen that at all? Is there a chance that maybe we could uh, use some so of those I, older products that lost or it might be too early to say? Well, I'm trying to think what would be the only example that I could test. So 11s don't work, but there's 11s and premixes. So 11s going out there, whether we're using it or not, right. pathogens still being exposed. Um, then Ro- Roverall has been pulled from a couple of regions. So that would be interesting to go back and see if the population has reverted back to being sensitive since it hasn't had any selection pressure. I honestly, I don't know how that works. I've like with thrips, I've been told that once your population develops resistance, even if you don't use that product, as soon as you bring it back, it's going to come back. It's going to come back fast. Like you may, you may get some life of it out of it, but it's not fast. Right. Genetics are just already in that population. So I don't know how it works with diseases. Right. Oh my gosh, if that was true, I'm just like, take a five-year break and we'll get it back again. <laughs> That'd be awesome. That would be nice. Just rotate yeah, and through it, different years. And it years. looks like the frac sevens, there is cross-resistance among the subclasses. So I had Miravis Prime last year, which was labeled for the first time in New York. We weren't even using it. It came in, it was a little bit better than Luna, but it was not a front runner. So when you got a brand mm-hmm. new product that's never been labeled in a different subclass and it's not doing well... It certainly appears that there's cross resistance among the subclasses, which is disappointing because I was, I'm still looking at other subclasses. There's a whole bunch of them. Maybe I'll find one that's not. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, there seems to be a lot coming in that uh, frat group seven. So Mm -hmm. hopefully maybe there's something coming. Yeah. I think I'm, I think I'm looking at the fifth subclass this year. Looked at four, maybe I'm losing track, but around there. Great. Well, um, with no, uh, Actually, uh, Clay, if you are able to, Mike, I'm not sure if we're able to open up the audio or not, but uh, I believe someone had a question. And if not, I will say thank you uh, uh, to Christy. This show is put on by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. It's a group of extension educators and researchers from across the Great Lakes region and sponsored by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. Uh, We broadcast live via Zoom. At 12.30 Eastern, 11.30 Central, uh, every Wednesday from the first week of March to the first week of September. So during the most of the growing season, we interview farmers, researchers, and others about topics relevant to vegetable growers. So next week, join us for uh, Ben Phillips from MSU interviewing Vicki Marone and Jake Overgaard about Organic Certification 101. Uh, so sort of how do I start? If you're thinking about starting, when do I start? And what are people screwing up on a regular basis? So If you've been thinking about going organic or getting certified, be sure to tune in. Uh, With that, Christy, really appreciate you having me on. Um, Had a blast, learned a lot. Um, And thank you for for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to all the listeners as well. And uh, have a great week. We'll talk to you uh, next Wednesday. Same place, same time. glveg.net slash listen.
Thanks, everyone.